Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 5th of September, 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. And we're delighted to be joined by Katie Jo Murphy and our very own David Scott. Well, Brian, I'm so excited. <laughs> I can't contain myself. I'm so excited. We have a new prime minister. There she is in her purple dress. Uh, and uh, well, she got 81,326 votes. Uh, Rishi only got 60,399 votes. It was inevitable, Mike. They had to grey out Rishi because Rishi blabbed. He started to talk about inner government secrets to do with the Be Behavioural Insights team. So he had to be greyed out. And there she is in the colour of kings. Yes. So very, very briefly, David, uh, you must be equally uh, excited about this. Oh, beside myself. It, it was closer than I was expecting, gentlemen. I'm not sure that Rishi blabbing was actually bad for his vote. It sounds to me like the uh, great conservative unwashed actually uh, moved a bit more towards him after he blabbed. Just a thought. It's quite possible. But anyway, uh, look, let's get on to serious matters because uh, who is leading the country makes no difference whatsoever. But uh, what is going to make a difference to people's lives is, of course, gas prices uh, and uh, gas prices surging, uh, says Sky News this morning. Wholesale gas prices surge after uh, Russia decides to keep the Nord Stream pipeline off. Uh, I mean, the, the, the narrative on this uh, continues to be completely nonsense. So uh, just as a reminder, the pipeline was completely shut down in, at the end of August for scheduled three-day maintenance. Uh, and then there was an engine oil leak reported in a turbine. Uh, Gazprom announced it on the 2nd of September that uh, shipments would not be resuming on schedule. Uh, and there was no uh, idea at that point about why, about when they would uh, start again. And then the CEO, Alexei Milner, uh, well, he's been warning that it's the sanctions that have been causing the problems, mainly the fact that uh, the Canadians weren't, uh, uh, as a result of Canadian sanctions, they couldn't get the parts back uh, for the pipeline that they needed. Uh, but uh, let's bring Alex, Alexander Novak, uh, Alexei Novak onto screen. Uh, this is the uh, Russian Deputy Prime Minister. He's saying right now the problem lies precisely on the EU side because all conditions of the repair contract have been completely violated, along with terms of shipping. Uh, the equipment and David very again briefly the 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 narrative here in the West is that uh, uh, it's these nasty Russians that are uh, uh, sort of pursuing economic warfare against the West by shutting off the uh, the gas pipeline um, with no acknowledgement whatever uh, that of course it was the West began this whole sanctions warfare uh, in the first place. Well, this is the uh, the the perpetual narrative. It's okay when we do it. And uh, the West, the West have manifestly not had the success in economic warfare that they'd anticipated. They expected Russia to be ground down by this, I suspect, quite rapidly. And and uh, after the initial panic and the fall of the ruble, the Russian economy recovered and has gone on in relatively healthy fashion. Um, the problems appear to be disproportionately faced by the Western governments themselves. Uh, well, let's come on to that then and uh, go over to Germany. And here is uh, Siegfried Rusworm, who's the uh, German from the German Industrial Association, uh, talking about the effect that uh, gas prices are having on German industry. He's saying the uh, he was saying over the weekend the situation is already toxic for many firms uh, now or shortly, uh, not only because of gas scarcity, because but above all because of the absurd 
price increases. Uh, and then in an article in the FT, the, the FT headline here is German companies halt production uh, to cope with rising energy prices. Uh, and they quote uh, Robert Habeck, who's the German economy minister, saying the situation is alarming. I think alarming isn't quite the word I would use. But anyway, he said the situation is alarming. Companies have completely ceased to produce. Whole industries are not just being restructured, uh, but experiencing a collapse, a structural collapse occurring under enormous pressure. And just looking around the headlines uh, from uh, today and, and over the last couple of days, here's Bloomberg. Uh, metal plants feeding Europe's factories face existential crisis. Uh, in the aluminium industry, closing a smelter uh, is an agonizing decision. Uh, once power is cut uh, and the production uh, settles back uh, to norm, to, to room temperature, it can take many months uh, and tens of millions of dollars to bring things back online. Uh, then we've got oilprice.com, European, European stainless steel mills are closing due to energy crisis. Uh, and Forbes here uh, talking about two blast fur furnaces uh, being closed. Uh, it's, it's hard to uh, overestimate, uh, David, the impact of shutting down a, a furnace in this way. Uh, and as that uh, Bloomberg article says, uh, the amount of effort that it requires to start it all up again. So, you know, if this is the position that we're in, of course, people are going to be losing their jobs as a result of this, uh, this type of, of action. This is <laughs> devastating. Absolutely. It takes us back to the days of the miners' strike in the 70s, early 80s, rather, um, and the fight to save the steel mill in Motherwell, Ravenscraig. Uh, they were being picketed uh, by the miners and were determined to, to keep the plant open because they knew if the if the blast furnaces were ever shut down, they would never restart again, mm -hmm. such is the cost and difficulty of doing so. And such was the, the, the powerless uh, position economically of the plant. And they were right about that, and uh, a great deal of drama ensued. This will be true also across Germany. Uh, many of these uh, blast furnaces may never reopen again, and it will have a huge knock-on effect on other industries, such as construction, uh, which experienced huge price inflation in steel uh, at uh, the time of the COVID shutdown, and it looks set to be experiencing something similar again. Yes. And isn't it also strange that this is happening at a time when, of course, China is regarded as the arch enemy alongside Russia? Um, so where, where is the replacement uh, steel going to come from? Is it going to come from China, do we think? No. China, mm. China is also shutting down its economy for, for different reasons. But anyway... Uh, that's uh, that's the situation. But David, let's move on to the United States then. And the headline here uh, is uh, Biden taps Podesta to implement climate and energy spending in Inflation Reduction Act. And this Inflation Reduction Act, of course, doesn't really seem to me have much to do with reducing inflation. <laughs> no. Uh, and the president, President Biden said, this means we can truly hit the ground running. Hit the ground running. That seems familiar. Oh, and that was, in fact, the Telegraph's title today regarding Liz Truss, who was going to hit the ground running. In fact, that was a cliche she used during her campaign. So it all seems very, very uh, uh, um, unusual that they pick the same words time and time again. Uh, CNBC continues here. John Potesta to, um, to join Biden's climate team as top advisor. Um, so it's a, he's a senior advisor overseeing the implementation of 370 billion dollars in clean energy projects under the Inflation Reduction Act. 
I find that deeply funny. Uh, <laughs> Podesta, former um, uh, uh, climate uh, strategy supremo under the Barack Obama government, will be tasked with doling out tax cre credits for clean energy products like solar panels and electric vehicles and towards research and development in renewable energy production. $370 billion, it sounds like there'd be more than that, but there we go. More recently, Podesta served as chair of Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign and founded the left-leaning think tank Centre for American Progress. So no failure is a bar to office and neither is a very dodgy art collection. And here we have Omar Navarro, who is a candidate for the House of Representatives uh, in America, uh, reminding everyone of the nature of John Podesta's art collection. And that's something we should all be aware of and be concerned about. Uh, yes, that's yeah. quite unpleasant. Yeah. Um, OK, let's uh, let's move on then. And uh, well, foreign affairs, well, let's move on to Ukrainian issues and Russia and so on. Foreign affairs is this headline. Uh, the world Putin wants, how distortions about the, the uh, past uh, feed delusions about the future. Now, I'm not really too interested in what this article says in general. There's one paragraph uh, that sort of gives the game away here, and that was uh, this. Uh, according to multiple former senior U.S. officials we spoke with in April 2022, Russian and Ukrainian negotiators appeared to have tentatively agreed uh, on the outlines of a negotiated interim settlement. Russia would withdraw to its position on this, the position that it held on February the 23rd, uh, when it controlled part of the Donbass region and all of Crimea. And in exchange, Ukraine would promise not to seek NATO membership and instead receive security guarantees from a number of countries. Well, coincidentally, Brian, uh, that was exactly the time that uh, Boris Johnson headed over to Kiev for his first trip. So. What? you know, how much influence did he have in making sure that that peace agreement did not succeed? Well, uh, Mike, I, I'm reading um, about a number of efforts to get some form of peace and uh, some form of stop in the fighting. Uh, but it's, uh, a lot of people reporting that when Boris Johnson went over to Ukraine for Independence Day, which I think was the 24th of, uh, of um, August, uh, what he was actually doing was uh, promoting the fact that uh, the Ukrainians must not stop fighting. And indeed, many people are suggesting that Boris was actually pushing uh, for the Ukrainian counteroffensive. And of course, that was going to be at any price to the lives of the Ukrainian troops, because subsequently the offensive has uh, shown itself to be an utter disaster. The Ukrainians have, have taken extremely high casualties and now they've committed reserves to those attacks. So they're now back in their trenches, bruised and battered and in a worse position. So many commentators saying that Boris Johnson went to Ukraine in order to make sure that Zelensky did not give in and move towards any, any form of peace deal. And if we look at how cynical the uh, UK's involvement in this war is, this is Ben Wallace here, but Ministry of Defence, uh, Defence Secretary Ben Wallace today visited Ukrainian volunteers being trained in the UK, not just by the British Army, but alongside instructors from Denmark, the Netherlands and Finland. None of these countries have any experience in the type of warfare being conducted at the moment in Ukraine. So what are we doing here? We're actually creating uh, troops for the slaughter. And of course, this is in the UK-US proxy war. And if people want to know the reality of what took place in the so-called Ukrainian counteroffensive, this is a very short clip. 
uh, are, what are we watching on screen? Well, the white dots are men, they're not sheep. And this is how the Ukrainians attacked in the open with limited numbers of troops. And the result was that the Russians shelled the advances. And so any decision for these Ukrainian troops to attempt a counterattack without the necessary troops and equipment and artillery was a pure suicide mission, of course, promoted by Boris Johnson, Ben Wallace, the, the UK, the, the EU. And uh, aside from that, of course, the other thing that's been happening is the Western weapons have been captured in vast numbers. This is just one small cache. Either they've been destroyed on the battlefield, they've been destroyed after capture, or they're now in the Russian arsenal. But just outrageous that uh, millions of pounds worth of weapons have simply been handed over to the Russians or sold on the black market. Uh, meanwhile, the Ministry of Defence in UK continues to pop, pump out what is despicable, laughable, in fact, propaganda because it is so pathetic. So this is all saying how difficult it is for the Russians and they're not making any progress. But the statements in it like this, um, Russian forces have highly likely repeatedly missed deadlines. <laughs> so that is a construct statement. It's based on nothing. It's designed to be misleading to the readers. No substance to it whatsoever. And if we go to another one here, uh, this is uh, very common. Russian forces continue to suffer from morale and discipline issues in Ukraine when the reality is that the Russian armed forces are showing unbelievable professionalism in fighting against much larger numbers of Ukrainians. So this, this is, it's an utter disgrace. Well, right? it is, but correct me if I'm wrong, but defense intelligence updates are supposed to give uh, the, the public, well, mainly politicians, uh, some kind of idea of what's actually going on on the battlefront, right? So but, it should be giving information about both sides of the, uh, of the, the battle. Well, yes, should, yes. should. But what it is is a propaganda machine and not a very good one because the quality of the propaganda from defence intelligence is so poor. I yeah. mean, it's, it's, it's laughable. Uh, well, let's head over to Ukraine then and put this on screen and we'll do a quick translation for it. This is the Centre for Countering Disinformation at the National Security and Defence Council of Ukraine. Uh, on September the 1st and 2nd, 2022, the International Roundtable combating disinformation in the conditions of military operations was held. Um, so this was attended by representatives of NATO, uh, representatives of the US State Department and other European nations. Um, it was in, held in Kiev. Um, and uh, well, this is all about accelerating plans to impose, uh, well, what the uh, thought, thought control, thought management, well, certainly it's all about controlling the, the narrative. So what were they talking about? Uh, let's uh, bring uh, this gentleman on, Andrey uh, Shapovola, uh, Shapovlov. So I can't even pronounce it. I do apologise. But anyway, he said this: uh, only in this way will we be able to protect, effectively protect Ukrainians and citizens of partner st states from information crimes, in particular information terrorism. So, so and these these people, with everything that they've done inside their own country, the brutalising of Ukraine, are now going to teach us, the UK, the West, 
how to protect our citizens. Yes, so I'll get it right this this time. Uh, Shapovalov, Shapov no, I'm not. Shapovalov. Shapovalov, thank you. Anyway, he said, today our goal is to form an international hub for countering information threats uh, at the national and international level. Uh, he t uh, coined the term infoterrorism, uh, and he said that anyone committing a crime that uh, is declared as information terrorism should be subject to measures uh, as are applied to actual terrorists. Uh, David, are you an information terrorist? It's not clear, Mike. Uh, neither is it clear if we are engaged in stochastic terrorism. Uh, a new phrase that's made its appearance recently. Um, stochastic means random, you know, like uh, Imperial College um, mathematical <laughs> models of uh, pandemics. And... Uh, it suggests that uh, people who will be saying hearty things will encourage other people to do bad things, and therefore they're somehow uh, responsible in a way that uh, is not possible to actually predict or, or actually identify. So this is how people like Donald Trump are accused of being terrorists when they are manifestly not. Uh, yes, okay. Uh, now, uh, I'd be very interested in both your views, uh, Brian and David, about uh, this. This is uh, Vasily uh, Nebunet. I'm not having to do it very well today. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. the Russian yeah. permanent yeah. Uh, yes, uh, representative of the United Nations. Uh, and he was uh, saying this, as of September the 1st, 2022, none of the 56 Russian representatives for the main and advanced group have received entry visas to the United States. What are we talking about here? We're talking about people attending the United Nations General Assembly. So these are diplomats and, and support staff. Uh, he went on to say, similar situation exists with the accompanying journalists and crew members of the flight of our minister. And Brian, this just seems staggering to me that the United States is hosting the United Nations. It's supposed to be the international forum to settle disputes. Uh, and so the United States has decided that because it's having a dispute with one particular country, that that country should not be permitted to attend. Yeah, well, you, do, you don't want people meeting to have discussions that could lead to peace. You want to make sure that your enemy is kept outside the camp so you can plan for war. This is what it's about, the rules-based international order. My prediction is, sorry to mention her name, that Liz Truss is going to get her snout into this subject as soon as possible. She will be for more war. Yes, David? Well, I also see Andrew McLeod, a professor of uh, Department of War Studies, King's College. He's uh, starting to ask the questions, should Russia lose its seat at the Security Council, of which it's currently president? I'm not sure what mechanism could possibly exist to make that happen. Um, but uh, it, I wouldn't be surprised if this now becomes a, a, a talking point and a point of contention, as Russia is increasingly uh, excluded from all the institutions of the Western post-war uh, liberal settlement. Yes, yes, right. And uh, going back to Ukraine again, then here's Vladimir Rogov, who's uh, from, he's a representative, uh, I suppose local government representative near around the, the, Zaporozhye. Near the nuclear power plant and so on. Uh, and he uh, he had this to say over the weekend, uh, not only did the attackers, this is with respect to the attack on the nuclear power plant, uh, not only did the attackers study English, but underwent special training under the guidance of the British Secret Intelligence Service, uh, the MI6. Uh, and he went on to say, after that, they returned to Ukraine through Warsaw, ending up there uh, in Odessa from there. By the end of August, 
they had arrived in the appropriate region. Now, uh, of course, we've no way of verifying this, but I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I've seen, I've seen numerous um, little video clips uh, coming out of Eastern Europe showing the, uh, um, the international nuclear inspectors at the site of that power station. Uh, we've seen nothing about it really in, in uh, UK or Western press, but there is no doubt the Ukrainians were shelling the, uh, the nuclear power station. They had an attempt to capture it. Uh, that was uh, dealt with pretty severely by the Russians, uh, but the Russians did capture, I think it was two or three of the commandos that took part in that raid. Now, um, if we're to believe the Russians, they've obviously got that information out of the men they captured. Uh, but to launch a raid on a nuclear power station in the middle of a war seems just, uh, I don't know how to, yeah, obscene, yeah. it's crazy. But of course, we're not, we're not talking about it. The BBC's not talking about it in any detail. Um, so something really dirty went on. But at the moment, the Russians are very calm because it would appear the inspectors have already determined there's nothing untoward from the Russian side. Okay, and let's uh, come back home then. And uh, well, this was released by the uh, Ministry of Defence yesterday. Uh, UK Armed Forces joined troops from Finland and Sweden on Exercise Vigilant Knife. Um, so this uh, uh, Exercise Vigilant Knife is subsequent to Exercise Vigilant Fox, which took part in July. So there were 2,000 troops, uh, an international force, practicing, delivering and receiving international assistance, as well as enhanced uh, tactical and technical interoperability. And of course, this is all about, uh, I suppose, getting Sweden and Finland uh, into the NATO ways of operating. Into the club, yes. into the rules-based international order. So it's a little bit of uh, propaganda and advertising for the West because it's a very uh, small number of troops. Uh, meanwhile, as we criticise the Russians, their inability to operate military forces, uh, our aircraft carrier HMS uh, Prince of Wales has come back into port uh, uh, managed to get there. It only took them, what, four or five days to get it from the Isle of Wight to, into Portsmouth. That's excellent. Yeah. So uh, here was the headline. Well, that didn't go to plan, did it? Humiliation as British three billion aircraft carrier comes back to port days after breaking down off the Isle of Wight. Uh, now, you've had Admiral Morehouse uh, on the screen before, Mike. Let's just have a look at this clip and hear uh, what he has to say. I spoke to you earlier in the week regarding the emerging issue with HMS Prince of Wales and following an internal Royal Navy update earlier today, I wanted to provide further details on the situation. Our priority this week has been to ensure the ship and her people are safe, whilst working hard to understand the nature and extent of the damage. While we do not routinely comment on the material state of our warships, there has been some speculation and it is important for me to clear that up. Royal Navy divers have inspected the starboard shaft of the ship and the adjacent areas, and may have confirmed that there is significant damage to the shaft and the propeller, and some superficial damage to the rudder, but no damage to the rest of the ship. Our initial assessments have shown that a coupling which joins the final two sections of the shaft has failed. Now this is an extremely unusual fault, and we continue to pursue all repair options. We're working to stabilize the shaft section and the propeller, after which the ship will return to Portsmouth. The ship will then probably need to enter a dry dock, as this will be the safest and quickest way to effect the repairs. The good news is that our other aircraft carrier, HMS Queen Elizabeth, will depart Portsmouth next week to undertake elements of Prince of Wales programme in the United States, 
She'll then return to Europe to continue our autumn programme of exercises and operations. As for Prince of Wales, we will repair her, get her back on operations, protecting the nation and our allies as soon as possible. So David, I was watching your face during that report. What he actually appears to be saying is that, that a propeller shaft coupling broke and for the propeller to contact the rudder, the whole unit must have moved aft, that is backwards, to be in contact with the rudder. This is, this is an incredible situation. He appears a little bit puzzled as to how this has happened, uh, but I note that he says, well, we looked after the safety of our people. So we've forgotten ship's companies because that's the correct term he should have used. We're into our people, but they're all safe. Don't worry, we're gonna put our ship in a dry dock because we think that's the safest place in order to, in effect, to re repair. Uh, David, I'm going to say that this is symptomatic of breakdown inside the Royal Navy because we're now demonstrating we are not capable of building and operating a major ship. Um, I have other comments, but over to you. It's also incredibly coincidental, given what happened to the ship's namesake. HMS Prince of Wales was lost off Malaya, having been torpedoed by Japanese aircraft. The torpedo hit the propeller shaft. It was stopped and then restarted. Uh, but the, 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 the stays that held it in line had been damaged and it, it, it rotated uh, eccentrically and caused a lot of damage to the ship. And there was uncontrollable flooding uh, alongside the shaft up into the heart of the ship, which ultimately doomed it to sinking. So maybe his comments about, well, it's safe, were um, not entirely uh, uh, overstated. I don't know if there was any threat to the ship at any point, but these things can be extremely serious. It's, it seems incredible that such a, f a fundamental um, failure should, should occur in, in, in such a ship. Um, now, you know, these are big and highly complex uh, pieces of equipment. Um, they are somewhat groundbreaking, the biggest ships the Royal Navy's ever had, and some degree of problems and teething problems are to be anticipated. I think, to be fair, we should point that out. But this just seems uh, incredible, and it would suggest that there are potential problems in the other shafts and in the other ship. Um, if one has failed in this manner, what is there to prevent other similar failures happening as well? A really, really good points, David. I, I'm going to say once again that uh, many years ago we were approached by um, several people who told us of huge problems within the Royal Navy because they no longer had the technical capability and expertise um, amongst the officers in order to carry out basic refits, uh, never mind cope with the needs of a, of, a, of a new ship. So this is one of the reasons why uh, UK column at least has seen something like this coming because the Navy has been hollowed out. I'm watching the clock because we've got a little bit more to do on uh, the RAF, but I know you've, you want to come back on something. Just, just, just one question, Brian. Do you think this could be a maintenance failure? Um, I honestly don't know at the moment. I am wondering whether actually you've got some form of uh, fatigue failure in that there was a design problem with the shaft and uh, what, what we're actually seeing is, is a result of a, 
an actual failure of the shaft prop itself, but uh, possibly the uh, on you know routine maintenance wasn't carried out or the routine checks weren't carried out. But it's but a brand what, new ship. Uh, I know, Mike. But what we are seeing inside of the military, and we know this is happening because of people uh, talking to us, is that there is a breakdown in professional capability inside the services because they're more concerned as we shall see about crashes and the LGBTQ++ agenda. I'm sorry to be direct about this, but it's absolutely obvious. Meanwhile, let's have a look at what the RAF has been up to. Uh, two short video clips. I'm here at RAF Bryce Norton today to recognize the exceptional operational success of the Royal Air Force over the last year and award medals to some of those involved. One year ago, we'd just completed Operation Pitting, the largest humanitarian airlift by the Royal Air Force since Berlin over 70 years ago. During those few short weeks last year, we evacuated over 15,000 people from Kabul. Since then, the Royal Air Force has relocated a further 3,400 Afghans to the United Kingdom by air. The operation tested our people in the most difficult of circumstances but their strength of character and resolve endured. And as ever, they successfully delivered when asked. So David, we can't get an F-35 fighter in the air. We can't match uh, the Russian Air Force at the moment, but we can move 20,000 uh, people from Afghanistan. They can be flown first class RAF uh, back to UK. This is a, what, what is this? This is a failure now of um, direction of the armed forces? Well, I, I'll give you another, another World War II analogy. Uh, Dunkirk was a huge defeat, and it was turned into an advertising triumph because of the, the story and the, the, the men being plucked from the beaches and the, the genuine relief that was to the nation. They're trying a similar, a similar line here by taking a disaster that was the Afghanistan policy and saying, well, look how well we did in the retreat. I don't think that one is uh, going to fly, pun no. intended. <laughs> right, okay. Well, let's just see the second part of that little uh, video clip and see what else the RAF has been up to. Six months ago, Russia launched its unprovoked and illegal war against Ukraine. Since then, the Royal Air Force Air Mobility Force has flown over 8,000 hours and over 1,000 missions delivering humanitarian and military aid to the Ukrainians, including over 1.9 million rounds of ammunition, 25,000 sets of body armor, 86,000 helmets, and 5,500 anti-tank weapons. The Royal Air Force has also transported and contributed to the training of 4,500 Ukrainian Armed Forces personnel here in the United Kingdom, providing them with the leading edge skills and expertise to defend their country against Russian aggression. Throughout, we have been resolute in our support for our NATO and Joint Expeditionary Force partners, our combat and intelligence gathering aircraft helping protect Europe's airspace from the north of Norway all the way to the Mediterranean. The success of these operations and the many others that the Royal Air Force conducts daily to protect our nation is entirely down to our exceptional whole force of regulars, reserves, civil servants, and contractors, and our continued ability to attract and recruit 
high quality people from the widest pool of UK talent. There has been much recent interest in our services approach to recruitment. And as a leadership team, we're committed to ensuring it is a process that you and all our recruits, past, present and future, have full confidence in. There can be no higher priority than addressing this, because while cutting-edge aircraft, platforms and systems are fundamental to our operational success, it is the quality of our people who ultimately make the difference. And that's why being here today to recognise and say thank you to just some of those involved is such an enormous privilege. So freighting all that uh, of the arms and munitions to Ukraine, but what was he really talking about at the end there, Mike? He's talking about uh, recruiting. Mm -hmm. And of course, this is because the RAF's got a problem. Uh, you pointed this out a few days ago. Here was the Sky News headline, RAF pauses job offers for white men to meet, quote, impossible diversity targets. This is the type of policy which is destroying the military from the inside, whether it's the army, uh, the navy or the RAF. But the truth is coming out. And you've only got to have a little look at what the Ministry of Defence is promoting at the moment. This is no disrespect to the individual people. It's the fact that they are being lured into, lured into a completely false idea of what their job is, is really about. So here we are. This is all about childcare. Uh, this is effectively about women in defence and what they are going to do to protect the roles of women in defence. And I'm going to suggest this is a key part of the lack of focus of the uh, Ministry of Defence, which is resulting in these critical failures inside the armed forces. Uh, but uh, we go on to greater things because what's being reported at the moment is now that the Australians are going to be joint manning submarines with us. Uh, I've uh, tagged this global NATO emerges because I'm sure this is what is happening here. Uh, but uh, we've got a little clip here, sorry, of uh, Ben Wallace um, just uh, uh, at the British Aerospace Submarine Facility where the Australians are being um, groomed to get involved with the Royal Navy. So there we are. The French lost the submarine contract and UK's moved in at speed to uh, draw in the uh, Australians who are going to be serving on board the submarines, but we can't operate uh, on our own properly. So I don't think this bodes well. Um, so, uh, David, let's move over to the United States and, uh, and Adolf Hitler, it seems, uh, because he was uh, giving some kind of Nuremberg address. So it would seem, and we wonder, Mike, whether this will be the image that will define forever the Biden presidency. But we've got some clips. So if we run the first one, we'll have a little discussion about what exactly he said. I speak to you tonight from sacred ground in America, Independence Hall in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. This is where America made its declaration of independence to the world more than two centuries ago, <clears throat> with an idea unique 
among nations than in America, where all created equal. This is where the United States Constitution was written and debated. This is where we set in motion the most extraordinary experiment of self-government the world has ever known. With three simple words, we the people, we the people, these two documents and the ideas they embody, equality and democracy, are the rock upon which this nation is built. So there you have it, equality and democracy. That was not what the Founding Fathers were looking for, but never mind. Um, and also, did you see the comment there on sacred ground? So this is ground set aside for religious or holy purpose. This is part of uh, America as a religion, America as a belief system. It's not a nation, it's an idea. Uh, we've got more from him now. If you run the second clip, please. Too much of what's happening in our country today is not normal. Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans represent an extremism that threatens the very foundations of our republic. So this was the core of it. This was a speech um, against this Nuremberg-type backdrop with, with serving Marines in the background, so the whole infrastructure of the state was there to endorse what he was saying. This was a partisan attack on a political opponent that he looks like he's going to have to face in the 2024 election. Right? And he's trying to make them out as extremists and literally beyond the pale. We're trying to paint uh, the Biden version of America as America and the Donald Trump version of America as something alien, foreign, and uh, essentially uh, fascistic and, um, and, and hostile to the very ideas of what, on which America has been built. This is the level that the division has, has moved to in the United States. It's not any more um, political differences. It's very much deeper than that. Clip three gives us some more. And this is a nation that rejects violence as a political tool. We do not encourage violence. We are still an America that believes in honesty and decency and respect for others. Patriotism, liberty, justice for all, hope, possibilities. We are still, at our core, a democracy. So Two, two comments here. One, it's all about democracy. This is the word that keeps coming up. Democracy, democracy, democracy. Which, of course, is not what America is. It's a constitutional republic, but that's not what's been talked about. And do you love the point? A, a, a country which was founded by an armed rebellion, rebellion against British monarchy and government um, rejects violence as a political tool. Well, I was thinking more... I was thinking more in terms of Ukraine, uh, David, yes. there than that. Uh, you know, uh, violence is absolutely a political tool for the U.S. government. All the war, all the war between the states where 700,000, 800,000 Americans died right, to settle a political dispute in an enormous war in the middle of the 19th century. The, this, the, America's background is very much that violence is a political tool. And in fact, 
It's the political tool on which the country was founded and by which the country was founded. Uh, quite incredible. But the, the point, the other point is democracy. The whole speech is using this buzzword, keyword, democracy, as people who've covered our, who've, who followed our, our series, uh, Dissident's Guide to the Constitution, will know we talked a lot about this. Clip four goes on. But democracy endures only if we, the people, respect the guardrails of the republic. Only if we, the people, accept the results of free and fair elections. Only if we, the people, see politics not as total war, but mediation of our differences. Democracy cannot survive when one side believes there are only two outcomes to an election. Either they win or they were cheated. Now, gentlemen, if you pass, if you cast your minds back to when Donald Trump won, what were the left in America doing? It was hashtag not my president. It was four years of Trump-Russia possible collusion. The whole official through the mainstream media uh, drumbeat was we were cheated. Right? We had that for four years, but now we don't like it. Um, and the whole issue of free and fair elections, well, the, the, what, what he's terming the MAGA Republicans, uh, their claim is that the elections weren't free and fair. Right? They're not saying we should ignore free and fair elections. They're saying the elections weren't free and fair. They might be right, they might be wrong. You can agree, you can disagree, but that is their point. Mr. Biden goes on. Even in this moment, with all the challenges we face, I give you my word as a Biden, I've never been more optimistic about America's future. Not because of me, but because of who you are. We're going to end cancer as we know it. Mark my words. We're going to create millions of new jobs in a clean energy economy. We're going to think big. We're going to make the 21st century another American century. Is that a project and for the new American century? Exactly so. It's a project for the new American century. The deep state has not changed its narrative one bit. That's it. And did you like, I give you my word as a Biden. Uh-huh. That was a that was a special moment right there. I believe the police siren started at that exact point, David, there. Uh, that's the protesters. Over the wall, there was people shouting, um, let's go, Brandon, during most of this speech. Um, and uh, loud enough that he had to refer to it on a couple of occasions. Clip six uh, gives a little more. My fellow Americans, America is an idea, the most powerful idea in the history of the world, and it beats in the hearts of the people of this country. It beats in all our hearts. It unites America. It is the American creed. So again, the, this is a creed. This is not a nation. It's an idea. It's not a nation. It's not a country. It's an idea. This is, I find this very interesting. Does this mean that you can abandon, you can destroy the, the actual country as long as you keep the idea and, and it's, it's somehow okay? And also the most powerful idea in the history of the world. Not the idea that the Son of God gave his life for us and that you can um, escape death because of, of, of that act of, of uh, of love by a loving God. That, that's an idea that a lot of people have, have willingly died for. That's, I would say that's probably the biggest idea, the most powerful idea in the history of the world. The idea that, that, there is, that, that, the, that a creator is, is there to, to um, 
provide you with life without end. That's a bigger idea than the United States, but he, he didn't seem to rate that. No, America, the, the idea of, of, a, of a democracy where people vote, that's it. That's the biggest idea that's possible to have. And, and this, um, this um, diminution of, of the world of ideas, this um, restriction of everything down to very base ideas held up as great ones, is something that is actually permeating the West and is part of the decline of the West. I think a very interesting point there. Uh, final clip from Joe Biden. We just need to remember who we are. We are the United States of America, the United States of America. And may God protect our nation and may God protect all those who stand watch over our democracy. God bless you all. Democracy. Thank you. Democracy. Demo it's, that's what he's selling. Democracy. What do you think, gentlemen? Uh, well, I, d I just find him appalling. I find him very difficult to listen to at all because it's so outrageous. But, um, you know, the pushing of nationalistic ideas like this is, is to me, is, this is fascism or a version of it. That's the symbolism behind him. Indeed. Well, but we've got one very short clip from Scotland here. And then the background to this is Nicola Sturgeon's government sponsored a book festival. So Nicola got a chance to take over the end of the book festival for a party political selfie um, uh, with a, a lovey, a famous actor called Brian Cox, who you'll recognise. And um, it, during the interview about Scottish nationalism and why we should all be independent and all this, uh, with Mr. Cox, who doesn't live in Scotland, but uh, he's, he's, he's born in Dundee. Um, Brian Cox actually shows a bit of actual nationalism, and this is not permitted, and Nicola Sturgeon corrects him. Just watch how this is done. And it shouldn't be about personalities, it should be about country first, not politics, country first. And democracy. And democracy. <laughs> exactly. And democracy. It's not about country. You can't say that. It's democracy. It's the idea, right? And ideas are internationalised. And I think what you're seeing here, both in Mr Biden and in Nicola Sturgeon, is, is, is fascism in internationalised form. Now, okay. um, we've, we've got a couple of just quick comments on this. It was very risible. We've got more on extra time on this. Uh, we've got Babylon B comment uh, after using FBI to suppress the son's crimes and raid a political rival's home. Biden warns democracy is in danger. The Babylon B used to have to use imagination to write satire. They now just report facts and it's satire. Uh, and we've got CNN. Biden criticizes semi-fascism underpinning extreme MAGA philosophy. It's not just Trump, it's the entire philosophy. I'm going to say something, it's like semi-fascism. More on that in extra time. And just to finish this section, the New American um, comments in relation to this claim of semi-fascism. It quotes the Handbook of Propaganda, which may be interesting to many. Uh, it's, uh, the, the Communist Handbook of Propaganda uh, says, one, uh, it's going to make use of any and all existing discontents to redirect them into channels for undermining both the symbols and the practices of the established order. 
It's going to foment strife and suspicion amongst and between all political, social, economic and religious groups and associations, so they will not unite against the communists, and they're going to create and organise a host of front organisations with seemingly limited and legitimate objectives. And I put it to you, gentlemen, that describes the situation in Britain and America to a T. Yes, indeed. It okay, does. let's yep. move quickly on. If you like what the UK column does, you would like to support us, then please head over to community.ukcolumn.org uh, and there are options to help us out there, or you could pick something up at the UK column shop. Uh, but do please share uh, material on various platforms. Okay, and a very big thank you for everybody that uh, uh, took part in the Alternative View event yesterday. It went extremely well. We enjoyed ourselves. It was very hard work, but we uh, got through the day. And I'm delighted to say we've had a lot of emails thanking us. Uh, this is just one that I've, I've uh, chosen from Peter. Thank you, Mike, and all the members of the team for all the hard work you put into making AV12 and its transmission. I hope you made enough money to cover the costs and seed money to invest in the outlay, outlay of a live AV13. Well, the AV uh, team have told us that that's exactly what the event has allowed us to do. And so we're looking forward to moving on with a live event in due course. And remember, the people who bought the tickets made that happen. And uh, this one, I didn't expect AV12 to get to this, but bravo. And uh, this is coming back into uh, David Devine, who was giving a really interesting presentation um, about changes in the weather and what this was going to mean uh, for agriculture with some really fascinating statistics and data on the sun. And uh, this leads us into NHS. Uh, yes. So, so Katie Joe, let's say hello. And uh, well, the headline here is NHS invites more than four million people for autumn booster. Uh, as care homes set to get first jabs? That's right, Mike. Um, today, the 5th of September, is the start of the um, fourth booster rollout. And they will begin vaccinating uh, care home residents, people who are housebound and staff. And lucky for us, the UK is the first country to have the dual vaccine, which is brilliant, isn't it? The flu vaccine plus the COVID vaccine. Um, and I believe you've got some more information on the different boosters that are available, Mike. Yes, well, a couple of uh, weeks ago, we were reporting uh, that the MHRA had approved uh, Spikevax, which is a Moderna uh, bivalent vaccine. So this uh, is for original COVID plus uh, Omicron COVID, uh, SARS-CoV-2, I should say. Well, everybody would be very delighted to know that the MHRA has now also approved uh, the Pfizer uh, commonarty uh, bivalent original slash Omicron vaccine. So that is now approved. Uh, and thus, uh, the JCVI statement on the autumn booster advice that came out a couple of weeks ago has been updated. So it used to say this. Uh, now it says this. Uh, for adults aged 18 and above, we now have four choices, uh, two versions of spike vax, one bivalent and one the original, and two uh, versions of uh, uh, com uh, the, uh, sorry, the Pfizer one, uh, the, either the original, Minority. yes, the uh, bivalent or the uh, wild type original. So you've got your choice, Brian, which one are you going to go for? Certainly none of them at Good. all. Yes. None of them at all. Uh, okay. And uh, so Katie Joe, we had a statement then from uh, uh, Professor Wei Shen Lim, uh, who's the chair of the yeah. JCVI. That's right. I don't know why you wouldn't want to have any boosters, uh, Brian, because um, Professor Wei Shen uh, Lim 
uh, says that all of the available booster vaccines offer very good protection against severe illness from COVID-19. As more vaccines continue to be developed and approved, the JCVI will consider the benefits of including them in the UK programme. Um, it is important that everyone who is eligible takes up the booster this autumn, whichever vaccine is on offer. This will increase your protection against being severely ill from COVID-19 as we move into the winter. And we also had a statement from Dr Mary Ramsey, Head of Immunisation at UKHSA. She says that although cases of COVID-19 are relatively low at present, we are expecting to see the virus circulating more wildly during the winter months. The booster is being offered to those at higher risk of severe illness and by taking up the booster vaccine this autumn you will increase your protection against of the um, ahead of the winter months when when respiratory viruses are typically at their peak not one mention of, of adverse reactions in sight um, i had a little look as well at the um, university hospital southampton in their study which revealed the fourth covid19 vaccine dose gives a strong immunity boost. Apparently, COVID-19 vaccines given as fourth doses in the UK offer excellent boosting immunity protection, according to the latest results from a nationwide study. There was only one very small mention of adverse uh, side effects, which was, while pain at vaccination site and fatigue were most common side effects, there were no vaccine-related uh, serious adverse events, and fourth doses were safe and well-tolerated. It is unbelievable that they are still getting away with this. Rolling out the uh, fourth booster in care homes and to those that are housebound, so those that are most vulnerable and weak, is unforgivable. The MHRA's yellow card reporting system is constantly being updated. Um, and although we know it's a very small percentage of those that actually are affected, it's about 2 to 10% that actually report, and the majority go un unreported. Um, the number who have filled out adverse reactions and fatality with the yellow card system is ridiculously higher than, the than, than would be needed to halt this vaccination programme. I mean, according to the FDA, a, dr a drug usually is removed from market when its risks outweigh its benefits, obviously. There have been 2,264 reported deaths attributed to the COVID-19 vaccines and thousands upon thousands of other horrendous life-changing side effects. So why are GPs ignoring this? Well, GPs will be incentivized, of course, to deliver accelerated autumn COVID boosters in care homes with payments of up to £525 per completed care home. The autumn programme is due to start from next week, but GPs have now been asked to complete care home vaccinations by 23rd of October where possible. Um, and basically, it, it added that completed care homes are those where the maximum number of eligible residents have been vaccinated and that the incentive will be payable for each individual care home completed by the deadline. Uh, GP-led vaccination teams will receive £150 for each small care home, £275 for each medium care home, £400 for large and £525 for very large care homes. It's disgraceful, um, but it's nothing new. Um, kickbacks for reaching vaccine targets have been given to GPs for decades now. Yeah. And Cody Joe, I'll just add to that that at the Alternative View event yesterday, a number of professionals uh, said to the camera, some of them were recorded, some of them were the, the uh, live speakers, that in their opinion, elderly people were being deliberately culled under this system, um, which is, uh, well, it's unspeakable, really.
Yes, uh, right, David. Uh, I'm afraid I can't see what you're showing us on screen, but anyway, uh, let's uh, talk about talk about the promise uh, and move north of the border okay. for this one. Right. Okay. Well, we're a bit short for time. We'll see how, how far we can get on with this. So the promise, right, is the promise from well, guess who? It's from Nicola Sturgeon because there is only the dear leader. She represents the whole nation. Scotland, all of us. Uh, has an ambition, quote, to be the best place in the world to grow up, end quote. That's Nicola Sturgeon we're quoting here. And children, uh, so that children are loved, safe and respected and realise their full potential. Loved, safe, affected, uh, uh, love, loved, safe and effective and realise their full potential. Now, that suggests that whoever wrote that doesn't know anything about life, okay? Um, because there's many things wrong with that. You earn respect. Um, I don't... I don't know if any of us can honestly say hand in heart we realised our full potential at any point. That's not the nature of humanity. Uh, safe, yeah, fair enough. Loved. How can the government specify loved? It doesn't understand what it means. It's a corporate entity. It can't love anything. So this has uh, gone forward and uh, in 2016, the, the First Minister announced an independent root and branch review of the care system to look at underpinning legislation, practices, cultures and ethos. And an independent care review came back with um, seven reports, one of which was the promise. So they're going to promise to make it all better. So the, um, they looked at the care system. Uh, they found that the current care system is not a system. It operates within complex legislative frameworks, bureaucratic, it's expensive. It does not operate as a single entity. I'm not sure why that's a problem, but it is for Nicola because there can be only one. Um, it does not universally uphold the rights of children. We refer to articles on our website on that subject, and does not provide the context of loving uh, the context for loving relationships to flourish. This, the, the care system can't do this. Um, it continues uh, for services to work for children and families. So families now get a mention. That's an improvement. They must be shaped around children and families uh, instead of around policy areas, budgets, legislation, and monitoring. Fair enough. The next bit says we have got big problems here. Right? Scotland must facilitate a conversation that ensures a wider appetite for change. Now, Scotland is, is not defined, so there's nobody that's responsible for this. It's everybody, and that means nobody is responsible. If someone says, um, I'm going to do something, they, they might do it. If someone says, I'm going to, or we are going to do it, less so. If someone says, we are going to discuss it, they're not going to do anything. If someone says, I'm going to facilitate a conversation, you know they're doing nothing. And that's what's happening here. Um, so the, the landscape is cluttered complex and does not provide a clear frame to support children, families, decision makers. Eh? So families are not decision makers. Did you get that? And service providers. So you see the problems creeping through. Um, so they've, they've, got, they've got seven reports. So the, the reports are The Promise, a, a simplified version for younger readers called The Pinky Promise. This is a government document, by the way. The Plan, The Money, Follow the Money, The Rules, and a Thank You. So looking at Follow the Money, um, they're talking about the, 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 um, this is a chance to save cash, right? There's going to be a positive financial implications for other entities and budget lines from delivering the promise. So this, this, this is such a good idea. It will pay for itself. Everything that comes out of the Scottish government says this, and it's never true. 
Uh, they continue the benefit of a well-being economy. Now, they can't define well-being, so they can't define well-being economy. Can be understood through the lens of insulating children from risks. That, that's not, insulating children from risks is not loving. It's not caring for them. That's bizarre. And then in the next sentence, they say, yes, of course, even with insulation installed, and that's creepy language, fires still happen, but the risk will be reduced. And then they talk about reducing poverty won't eradicate the need for care. This is written by someone who's never been in poverty and doesn't understand that poverty and care are not, are not mutually exclusive. Far from it, they're completely different issues. But it will mitigate it in these many of the pressures. It's about welcoming the value to be created rather than simply weighing the cost of delivery. So we're creating value now. So you see how the population and the children start to be viewed as the product. They can't help it, it keeps coming up. So we've got, we've got three plans, right? Because one plan's not enough. We've got three plans, each lasting three years. Uh, and that's so that we've got three years to write the second plan and another three years to write the third plan. Okay, so that's good. So the, the current plan, 2124, we've got some extracts here. You know, we're gonna do uh, many things, including language. Organizations of responsibilities towards care experienced children and young people will be able to demonstrate that they are embedding destigmatizing language and practices across the way they work. Yeah, because that'll really help kids in care, right? Because they don't want to be called kids in care, they want to be called care experienced, and that'll make all the difference. So this is, this is fanciful. And then we've got building capacity. Children, families, and the workforce, odd that it's the workforce now, must be supported by a system that is there when it's needed. The scaffolding of help, support and accountability. Who's accountable? Is it the parents who are accountable? I'm not sure. Must be ready and responsive when it is required. So we've got scaffolding of help, okay? And then we've got whole family support. Um, this, this gets quite odd. Where children are safe in their families and feel loved, not are loved because the government can't define it, feel loved. So if the child has a fallout with the parents and doesn't feel loved, does the state intervene? I, I imagine they do. Uh, if they, but if they feel loved, it's all about your feelings, there they must stay. The families must be given support together to nurture that love and overcome, to nurture that love. The state's going to give them family support to nurture love. Who, who are these people kidding? and overcome the difficulties which, which get in the way. Scotland must listen to, and well, here's, here's, a, here's a, an, an admission of what's actually been happening. Scotland must listen to and absorb the overwhelming evidence of the lasting pain that removal has caused children, families, and communities. That's them admitting that they've been doing child stealing by the state and it's been disastrous. Mm. This must result in a fundamental shift of thinking about when a child should be removed from their family. So this is them admitting they got it fundamentally wrong. It is buried in there, but at least they're admitting it. And they say, where living as a family is not possible, children must stay with their brothers and sisters, we're safe to do so, uh, and belong in a loving home, etc. So that's a little outline of, of some of seven, now, now, now eight reports, and a huge amount of documentation that's coming out of the, the, the Scottish government. Uh, Brian, can I ask you for a, a, a quick comment on what you think of that? Well, I found it fascinating, uh, very spooky in the language being used. Um, I haven't seen that document before you've shown it to us in the news today, uh, but my mind says uh, that the end date is 2030. Uh, I'm going to take a guess that this has come out of UNESCO. This is, 
This document hasn't originated in Scotland, it's come out of UNESCO, and this is part of the world agenda, uh, basically that children are not going to be within families of loving parents, but the world state will ultimately control the children. So I'm just gonna make that as an off the cuff remark. But um, at the moment I have uh, a mother who has had two newborn twins taken from her. Um, she is beside herself, what can she do? What advice can we give? It's horrific, the child stealing by the state, which continues to this day and it is done principally for the vast profits that can be made from the care of the children, inverted commas, the care of the children, and of course the associated sex industry that goes on around those children. And if you look at the document, follow the money, it does explain just how much money we're talking about, and it is vast. That's just in the Scottish context, multiply it by 11 to get a UK figure. Yes. Yes, okay. Uh, Kitty Jo, let's, uh, let's end then with uh, the global walkout. Yes, I mentioned the global walkout a couple of weeks ago on the show, and last night the walkout began. So every Sunday at 8pm, a new step will be announced, and the plan is going to uh, gradually disconnect from the uh, global agenda and become more independent and in control with our own lives. So the reason that I love this is that it's uh, global. And this globalist agenda for the human race affects every single one of us, and it is worldwide. So it is time we unified and took action together. So um, step one is all about cash, all about using cash and keeping cash. And there was a great article published a couple of days ago in the Irish uh, Times with the headline, Cashless Society Would Give Banks Way Too Much Power. Well, let's be clear, it would give them complete power. So I think it's brilliant that the first step in the global walkout is to focus on encouraging people, as many people as possible, to use cash. Um, and what they have done is they've created these little cards you can print out uh, for customers to hand out when they use cash and that they can share with friends and family. Um, and they've also uh, got a printout for shops and um, uh, people, that, small businesses to hang up in their windows to show people why they're encouraging their customers to use cash. And these little cards um, have five points on them. And it says, I paid cash today for a reason, to save this business money on transaction fees, to give this business more control over their profits, to support my local economy and community, to keep my purchase and local uh, location anonymous, and to keep cash alive. And Catherine uh, Austin Fitz announces the first step in the video. This is the Global Walkout. One step at a time, hand in hand, we are walking out from the globalist society they are trying to enslave us into. Today is September 4th, 2022, the first step for the Global Walkout. My name is Catherine Austin Fitz, and I'm walking with you. Here is our first step, and it's a powerful step, a step of financial rebellion. Arrange enough cash to cover your living expenses for a whole week. If you can't arrange enough for a whole week, get enough for one day, do that. If you can arrange more, do that. Do what you can do, it will be good. Don't tap or swipe your debit card, credit card, your other digital cards for as long as possible. Use them as little as possible. And when you use cash, take the opportunity to tell your neighbors, 
your friends and family why, so they can join you in using cash to reverse the push for financial tyranny. Come to your financial power, use cash, and stay tuned for the next step, an announcement in exactly one week's time. Every time you pay with cash, how about you use it as a way to raise awareness as to why it's so important to keep cash alive. Go to the Global Walkout website and on step number one, you will see this download. It is a little card, you cut it into 10 different cards and every time you pay with cash, give them one of these little pieces of paper and let's raise awareness and explain to people that cash needs to stay alive. Every Sunday at 8pm London time, a new step will be announced. United, we will empower ourselves and each other to become more independent, self-sustainable and in control of our own destinies. Together, we will reignite freedom. Join the Global Walkout family at www.globalwalkout.com and we will see you next Sunday. What do you think? Well, I make the effort to pay by cash where I can, and I always use the uh, uh, checkout tills with a real person rather than the scanned. And I always tell the people why I'm there paying them, because if we don't pay them, they're going to lose a job. But ultimately, we're going to lose a basic. Well, we're going to lose freedom to the banks. So, yeah, I, I would say this is heading in the right direction. Yes. Uh, any final comments, Kitty Joe? Um, just that I know it's really inconvenient for a lot of people like you, Brian. I use cash as, where I can possible, as much as possible. Um, and I know it's inconvenient, but everything that they've made, all this convenience that, that, that we have now in the way we live is just us surrendering our, our independence and we're giving them more dependency. You know, we, we, we have to start taking responsibility for ourselves. Yes. Yeah. Thank you for that. Uh, and David, then we'll end uh, with this. Yes, just turned 72 this week. Uh, Hans Hermann Hopper, um, of which the column is quite a fan. We've mentioned them in the um, Dissonance Guide uh, to the Constitution series several times. He's got a quote here. Democracy has nothing to do with freedom. Democracy is a soft variant of communism. And rarely in the history of ideas has it been taken for anything else. Yes. Okay. Sorry. Am I allowed to get away with one more? Well, if you if you really want to. <laughs> well, it was only because there's been such a focus on uh, what's been going on in Ukraine. And uh, uh, this really sums it up. Apparently, the uh, Ukrainian symbol of resistance is the cockerel. And um, well, I'll leave people to read the online text to that one. Yes. Do I make any apologies? No, because it's an utter disgrace uh, what UK and Boris Johnson are doing to Ukraine. And I do hope the Ukrainian people will wake up and realise that they are being used by the West. Yes, indeed. So a pair of. Yes, there we are. We'll be back in a couple of minutes for some extra. Indeed. Yes. All right. We'll leave it there. Thanks for joining us. We're still a little bit. Uh, uh, what's the word? Knackered. Uh, we're still recovering from Alternative View, which was a very packed day yesterday. So if you detect a little bit of hesitancy in our news today, that's why we've nearly been in the studio 24 hours, I think. Yeah. See you later. Okay. Thank you. Bye bye.